On this episode, I interviewed Jared Edwards, who's a sports physiotherapist, owner of RSP Physio, and head physio at Norris Rugby Union Club. The main topic of this podcast was the early stages of rehabilitation and the importance of this early stage. So main topics within this podcast were the biological healing stages and the importance of each, the general healing timeframes of tendons, ligaments, and muscles, and considerations with that, what he considers when planning a program in the early stages, the key components he feels are often missed out on in those early stages, bracing at different joints and how he goes about reasoning through this, how he built his diagnostic process, the biomechanical factors he considers, how he manages swelling and things to consider during that, and neuromuscular inhibition. So good comprehensive episode on that early stage rehab. So here it is. Welcome to No Weak Links with Patrick Wood. The purpose of this podcast is to help you learn up-to-date, evidence-based content and knowledge through life experiences. This podcast is perfect for athletes, strength and conditioning coaches, rehab professionals, or anyone in the sports performance or sports medicine industry. So please, have a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Noic Links. I'm your host, Patrick Wood, and today I have on Jared Edwards, who is a sports physiotherapist, owner of RSP Physio, and the head physio of North Rugby Union Club. So thank you very much for taking the time to be on, Jared. I guess first off, just uh, give our uh, brief overview on yourself, uh, what you've done education-wise, and where you're at currently. Beauty, thanks for having me on, Pat. Um, so yeah, so I own RSP Physio, which is a sports physio clinic in Brisbane. So we sort of started a couple of years ago, um, basically just after working in a few various sports clinics and realizing, you know, there was probably not enough done, all right, with uh, active rehabilitation, all right, following sports injuries. So trying to sort of blend the, the physio and the S&C principles just to kind of get a bit more of a well-rounded rehabilitation process for all the, the athletes and active individuals we were working with. Um, and it's been, uh, yeah, it's been an awesome couple of years. And then uh, finished off my sports and exercise masters uh, last year, um, following some fun little stints at the Queensland Reds and the Brisbane Broncos, but happy to have that uh, out of the way. Um, and then, yeah, just trying to use that knowledge um, to kind of better the couple of staff members that we have at the clinic and then um, bring that expertise to North's Rugby. Yeah, perfect. And you have obviously a lot of the user experience within physiotherapy. And um, I guess one of the things you're passionate about would be making sure that acute stage is done well and the importance of that acute stage as well. And some people uh, might overlook that and not see the benefit. So maybe just to kind of expand upon that topic a little bit of, you know, your view upon that. And then we can go dive a little bit deeper into the questions after that. Yeah, sure thing. Uh, I guess so. The big thing that I discuss, particularly with the the younger physios that um, I trains, I guess when we don't have the most accurate diagnosis, it doesn't really matter what the rehabilitation and how good the strength and conditioning principles are following, because um, if we don't have the diagnosis correct. Um, we're going to be moving in the wrong direction. So um, I guess the big thing with um, with that is making sure that we're building out our sort of physio, sort of clinical expertise more than anything, um, making sure that we're assessing the right things, we're ruling out the right things. And I guess if we're not um, – if we're not quite sure, actually knowing sort of when to refer on and when to bring in sort of that sort of that higher individual, whether it be a specialist or a sports physician, to make sure we're making the right steps as soon as possible um, in that acute phase. Yeah, so I think, uh, I guess maybe first off we can talk about the general biological principles and then we can dive into more clinical reasoning and, and things that you think uh, when to refer when to or how you go about different diagnosis and processes so maybe first talk through kind of the biological stages of healing and the importances of each of those and then we can dive into the other questions great so yeah so we know sort of all those different tissue structures vary in their healing timelines it's normally based around sort of the metabolic rate um so we're looking at sort of how much blood supply do we have sort of how complex is the um 
is the collagen structure. So we know tendons in particular are highly organized connective tissues. So we know that the healing process for them can take um, significantly longer than, say, our, um, our muscle groups, which with given their incredibly high um high blood supply we know that the remodeling rates are, are significantly higher so in that acute phase we've always got that um that inflammatory phase which i guess is somewhat immunological so we know that we get um a lot of growth factors a lot of clotting factors and different cytokines but i guess i think where we can sort of make sure that we improve it the best as a physio is to make sure that we do get that sort of early protection but not be afraid also of that early mechanical tension because we um we do know immobilization in some cases can be um can be detrimental to the healing of um soft tissues so we want to make sure that once we've got that diagnosis that we do get that sort of early mechanical tension all right through the muscles um which can help us shift from that sort of acute inhibition inflammatory stage all right into that sort of subacute all right um stage where we're starting to see the the redevelopment of muscle fibers all right your early sort of scar tissue um and making sure that we're starting to actually regenerate the tissue but like i said that can vary a lot depending on the um depending on the actual um the collagen structure yeah no i think um like so those are points and all things you have to consider because obviously those are that's just how the body works and that's how the processes work so you have to work around them initially and then you know you can adapt later on as you go but uh you know in considerations of those what are what are some differences you consider when programming uh, for different injuries, so different, you know, ligaments versus tendons versus muscles, how much differences do you have and, you know, what are the main considerations of each? Yeah, so I guess, say if we take, say, a an acute ligament injury, it's um, that's where we can kind of take that clinical experience in. So if we've got a grade three MCL, we know that that's going to need to be braced immediately because it's a, it's a really important muscle through that the through the medial knee so we want to make sure that we're we're trying to allow that to heal as best as possible versus if we've got that sort of grade three atfl um they're the ligaments that maybe we can sort of be that little bit more um that little bit more aggressive with and, and maybe not quite go down the whole sort of six to eight weeks in a brace all right to allow for that um, MCL to heal with an ATFL, we might only sort of take that sort of first couple of weeks to allow it to heal to the best of its ability. And then we may end up moving straight away kind of into more of a, a functional recovery as opposed to sort of looking at more of that structural recovery. But that's very much where sort of the area of the body. Um, and then I always look at it, say, as that risk versus reward, say with an MCL, if we end up at the end of the rehab protocol and we've got a lax mcl all right then we know that's going to have a lot more sort of repercussions for that that athlete with respect to sort of potential future injuries um or potential future surgeries compared to that atfl which we know we can kind of manage quite comfortably with more of those um the functional rehab protocols as opposed to um having a brace for that sort of first six to eight weeks to allow for a high grade ligament injury to heal yeah so weighing up the differences of making of the most risk obviously and then being a little bit more conservative or more cautious with those um with more protection initially and then the other ones obviously if it's a little bit more less then you can um, push on a little bit further yeah exactly well, right and we know ligaments are just that little bit of that funkier tissue where all right we've got to be that They've got to have that element of passive recovery. Like we know we obviously can't necessarily load them to strengthen them. So they're just one of those annoying sort of ligament inju the, uh, injuries where we know we've got to allow time first and foremost and actually allow for physiological healing as opposed to um, a muscle where, all right, obviously in that acute stage, we can kind of be aggressive and hopefully make some really nice leaps all right whereas with that ligament we do have to allow just that little bit more for the physiological process to actually occur yeah and with muscles versus tendons or uh, what 
what do you do for there? Like the differences are there. What are your considerations? Obviously, tendon is going to be longer. Um, anything else you consider in that early stage, the differences between the two? Yeah, I, I consider muscles and tendons actually quite close because I treat them very similarly. Yes, say our tendons or like our intramuscular tendon in the hamstring, um, we still load them very early. So, um, so within that sort of first 48 to 72 hours, I like making sure that whether it's an isometric for a intramuscular tendon injury, the hammy, okay, or, um, or being able to start on some really light concentric, eccentric sort of work, I, although tendons take longer, I would still be um, treating them acutely in a very similar um, vein of thought. So as quick a mobilization um, as possible, uh, with those and making sure that we're kind of we don't necessarily have to be too strong with respect to um, pain as we know like, there's a lot of research with hamstrings in particular that we can sort of rehab through either pain-free tolerance or we can actually rehab through the pain tolerated so sort of that zero to three and um, the muscles come out the same at the other end so maybe with that sort of slightly aggressive athlete we could actually get them to push through that fraction of pain. Um, but from my point of view, say in like a private clinic, I'm probably going to still sit more on the the pain-free because we know they come out the other end at the same time. Um, and similarly with the tendons, we also know that, yeah, working through that sort of traffic light system, um, zero to three out of 10, all right, is sort of an okay pain for a tendon. Three to five, three to six, we might have to sort of revisit what we're looking what we're doing and then obviously that sort of red traffic light seven and above we've really got to calm the tendon back down kind of look at what we're doing seeing what's sort of high tendon load okay what's moderate tendon load what's low tendon load and sort of revisit um uh why we're getting such a a high pain pain response yeah and, and you mentioned obviously the differences there between muscle ligaments and tendons but if we're looking at um and you, and you talked about your ligaments in the ankle versus knee and the reasoning through that but if we're talking about muscles and tendons at different muscles or different parts of the body so calf versus hamstring versus shoulder other different considerations you'd have for different body parts within those or obviously again it's the early stages so that'll be you know less varied than your late stage rehab but are there anything in the early stages you consider differences within those yeah not too not so much um i guess the big one I think with tendons, when you compare them around the majority of the body, like all the evidence around isometrics largely came in what the Achilles tendon and the patella tendon. However, like we've kind of extrapolated that to the tib post and the perineals and the rotator cuff. So I guess the big thing that I talk about with my athletes or the physios in particular is like as long as we're getting some type of load through it, I actually don't mind whether it's concentric, eccentric, um, or versus isometric. Um, as long as we're getting, all right, enough load through it, all right, so all that data is based on like an MVC of 70%, all right, whereas we'll see sort of rotator cuff tendons with a little yellow TheraBand doing an isometric, like that's nowhere near 70%. So I guess the troubles come when we extrapolate data from a, patella tendon volleyball basketball study to absolutely everything um we've just got to make sure that we're still getting fatigue all right we're still getting enough mechanical tension to actually induce an adaptation um and i think that's probably what's done poorly all right when you compare them um it's easy to do it in an achilles because we can throw body weight and a few dumbbells at it Okay, or a patella tendon because a knee extension machine can get loaded up to whatever. All right, but then we kind of get caught with the the rotator cuff and those smaller tendons just because we're using yellow bands sort of far too frequently. All right, which would not um, have anywhere near the mechanical tension we require to actually induce that adaptation. All right, as those studies sort of all determined with the patella tendons. Yeah, and uh, I think that's a. That summarizes well the differences of you know the different connective tissues. So if you're going to go from an overall approach to it, obviously they started off with rice into rice into peace and love. So what's what's Jared's P 
peace and love uh, key components of the early rehab that you want to focus on there? Yeah, so I'm actually complete. I can understand soft tissues not being iced because I guess if you're icing a hamstring, then you're potentially not um, you're not moving it. All right, you haven't compressed it, um, and uh, you're not loading it. But I do really like the um, ice packs and I think any physio that's worked on a sideline in that really acute time frame uh, ice is just your best friend all right I like to use ice even just to throw on an ankle because I know if the pain actually gets worse like it's kind of pointed me in the direction that maybe I need to get that scanned because um uh, open bone or fractures often worsens with ice so I also use it as almost like a clinical test in that acute time frame as well. Um, but I guess beyond that, the peace and love definitely, all right, when we're sort of protecting, elevating, avoiding the anti-inflames, compressing and educating, like definitely, uh, definitely, all right, a lot more effective than just our rice, um, particularly when we're getting that load and exercise into the tissues nice and early. Um, but I don't think sort of scrapping ice completely um is probably the right way to go because it is a cheap and easy analgesic and i guess if we can take that little bit of extra pain away and that allows them to actually mobilize better or load the tissue a little bit uh, more effectively like we're going to reduce a lot of that inhibition coming from the brain all right or particularly post-surgery someone struggling with sort of anthrogenic muscle inhibition all right, we know icing sort of before a rehab protocol after ACLs is actually beneficial. So I um, I don't scrap it completely because um, I'd much rather someone ice pack and then be able to walk freely um, than not ice pack, okay? And then they're limping around um, and uh, moving through sort of poor gait mechanics and potentially offloading the structure that could potentially be loaded and hopefully start to regenerate a lot quicker. Yeah, that kind of leads me into the next question I was going to ask with, we mentioned treating and looking at the specific structure that is injured. Do you look further upon that and potential other things that could have caused this issue or contributing factors or how do you go about that process? Yeah, so I guess that's one of the big things sort of acutely and interestingly when um, I went to Melbourne to listen to Ender King for a couple of days and and he was kind of, he was very upfront about he might be rehabbing an ACL, but he is rehabbing the entire athlete from day zero. Um, so I try to em- sort of employ very similar sort of tactics where, although I might not be able to load a hamstring aggressively in the acute period, like I'm still getting all of our um, guys and we're taking as much of our sort of outcome measures as possible, looking into their quads, soleus, gastroc, um, looking to see sort of how their hip lock mechanism is. And we're already trying to look at how we can integrate those larger practices of rehab, okay, um, to then better the hamstring in the long run. So I was like, we've got a very um, simple sort of protocol that we kind of use that assesses the entire lower limb so that no matter what injury has kind of come through the door, we've got a um, standardized protocol to make sure that we've looked at sort of two to three things at the ankle, the knee, the hip, make sure they're moving in a certain way so that we're trying to um, use that injury almost as like a little, uh, a little window to try to improve the athlete as a whole, as opposed to just looking locally. Um, particularly with those sort of proven um, proven things like, say, reduced uh, plantar flexion torque sort of in the soleus, all right, um, can sort of increase anterior knee pain in runners. So if we know those links already exist, all right, that's where we're sort of going immediately um, in that acute time frame to make sure that, yeah, looking after the anterior knee or the, the ACL, but we're also then moving straight on to make sure that we're trying to assess the, the soleus or the groin, all right, to make sure that we're um, making the athlete better as a whole. I think yeah. a good sort of example to that would be 
um, at the mo- most recent sort of neo way um, down in Melbourne. Uh, I think they worked out uh, there was a third um, adductor torque loss in that affected me. And sort of personally, it made me reflect on, yeah, I probably don't assess the groin quite as much. Um, and we've actually seen that sort of pop up in a couple of ACL athletes going through the clinic at the moment where we probably just haven't had enough um, sort of adductor-specific work to make sure that we're trying to uh, even up those torque symmetries as well. Um, but, yeah, so making sure that, yeah, looking very holistic at the same time and using it almost just as a little window to improve the athlete as a whole. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And with, uh, you know, obviously you don't have to go into the exact specifics of your protocol, but, you know, what are the main uh, characteristics you're trying to look at uh, in that screening protocol? And then also, how do you weigh up trying to get useful bits of data and useful bits versus trying to look at every possible thing and just having too much and taking too long? Yeah, and I guess we're lucky at the clinic because we do our initials. So, like, an hour is a long time to spend one-on-one, which is good. And I know a lot of other clinics might sit at that sort of 30-minute mark. So, um, like, we are blessed with just that little bit more extra time. Um, But we always look, say, at the, um, say, like, the lateral integrity of the hip. So, talked uh mentioned earlier sort of around the hip lock um and then the lateral trunk strength so we look at those two things when we're looking sort of proximal to the injury at the knee all right we're always looking at sort of uh we look at tibial internal rotation okay as well with a lot of our runners because i found more just sort of anecdotally um I guess one of the big things people struggle with is kind of maintaining that sort of big toe contact with the ground. And at the end of the day, that kind of comes back to a little bit of sort of how they calf raise as well. So if we take that ground up approach, we'll always do sort of like um, move through both a bent knee and a straight knee calf raise. Um, Moving up into the knee, checking whether it's sort of intra or extra articular. So we'll go through sort of flexion, um, flexion extension, internal rotation, up into the hip, internal and external rotation, um, into the modified Thomas test to check sort of whether there's any sort of soft tissue restrictions in that sense as well. And then, as we said before, kind of looking at that lateral hip integrity as well, because if we've um, if we've lost a bit of that lateral hip integrity as well, all right, it's going to make things like those calf raises, our lunges, and our squats sort of a a completely different beast as well. Yeah. And then we're blessed uh, with um, the valve technologies as well. So we'll kind of, yeah, make sure that we, that's where I guess you can get overloaded with data because I think when we first got the email from them, there were a thousand tests or something like that we could do. Um, But yeah, we uh, look very much particularly at uh, individual sort of torque values originally. So always looking at the sort of the soleus, quads, hamstring, um, isometric as well as an eccentric. Um, And then we'll get up into the force frame, looking at the hip adduction and abduction in zero degrees. We use zero degrees largely because the majority of research in football, um, so the highest prevalence of um, groin injuries is all done at zero degrees. Um, so we don't do it at sort of 45 or 90. So make sure that the, the limbs are extended at zero. And then from a jump point of view, I've fallen in love with the, uh, the, the drop jump largely because I've followed Ender King's work for quite a while. So, um, being down with him in Melbourne at the start of the year was just kind of like another way that sort of reignited my love of that test. So we kind of look at the double and single leg um, drop jumps, looking primarily at the sort of like the RSI values from that. Yeah, I think that gives a good general overview of how you could structure that screening protocol and, and what you're looking for within that. Now, you mentioned obviously making sure the diagnosis is correct. Then we talked about loading the specific tissues uh, and then looking 
outwards on what else could potentially cause that. So within the session or priorities wise, how are you ranking those and how much time are you spending on each? Or again, just more, what are your thoughts on the most important ones? Yeah. So I guess at the end of the day, we still want to be as local as possible because I was like, I guess that's why people still come to the physio because, all right, we're probably the most in-depth diagnostic clinician out there, um, um, barring moving into sort of like the, the surgical hemisphere. Um, but I would still, probably the first session, I reckon I'd still spend the first sort of 70 80% of my session making sure, say, someone completely understands the injury, all right, the future implications of the injury, and then I really like setting out a um, sort of like a timeline. So we've built out just like a rehabilitation timeline just week to week so that I can give the athletes, say, a general consensus of what their first 12 weeks are going to look like. Um, so I'd still spend my first session probably, yeah, that 70 80% of my time. And then provided we've got an, uh, and have established a nice loading plan quite early um we know that say strength is going to take a little bit of time so that sec if that second session or 72 hours later i know that local tissue is not going to be changed all right i know it's not going to have regenerated sort of that quickly um we're going to be well within that acute phase still um and that might be where we start to build out that sort of wider lens approach at the athlete and that's why but no matter what we do, is I like to see um, everyone privately sort of twice in that first 72 hours because as long as one hour is, um, it's still not long enough. <laughs> so I would love to be in a – it would be great to be in, a, in an environment where I could see someone sort of a couple of times a day to see how they respond to load. Can I progress them? Do I have to regress them? Um, but uh, – yeah, that first 72 hours is sort of is key because I can get and establish a diagnosis or as an accurate diagnosis as I can in that first 72 hours and build that wider lens approach all nice and early. Particularly because, yeah, I guess if the acute injury was caused by something different, like I guess if the acute injury is going to settle within two to three weeks, but we've found a pretty overwhelming, um, I guess, risk profile for that injury to be sustained a second time like if they've got to build some um some long-term strength in an area like we've got to tell the athlete great the injury might recover in three weeks but making sure you can build your soleus up to the point that it needs to be at that might take eight to twelve weeks um so that might be where we kind of need to still build that wider lens approach nice and early as well yeah, I think that's a good summary of reasoning through too, of making sure you make sure that specific tissue is taken care of, the education plan, everything's set in place. And then as you mentioned, it doesn't, you know, not much will change in the first 72 hours. So then looking into the next bit of what potentially could be a cause is, is, a, is a good way to go about that. And then you pr- you place obviously so much importance of having that diagnosis correctly. What have you done to help better your process of going through systematically to help better your knowledge of that of those di- diagnostic skills and, and honing in on that yeah yeah so I quite um, like it helps having all the the, the technologies because I guess I'm not going to say someone uh, an issue is caused by weakness unless I can prove it so that's where some of those um, those sort of technologies from Vald or strength by numbers or just your most simple dynamometer you can get from alpha sport here in australia um has helped because i see it probably the most in say shoulder injuries where um if we're getting say an overuse disorder of um of the shoulder probably previously i might sort of say to someone look we've kind of got to strengthen you up but i haven't in any way shape or form proved that I need to strengthen that person. Um, similarly, with um, tightness, if we take the shoulder as the example, if I can 
um, lion athlete on their back and I can put them in 90 degrees abduction, externally rotate their arm 110 degrees and internally rotate them 70 degrees. All right. I can't say that that, it, that person is tight. So the big thing that I try to do, I guess, with my, um, my clinical assessment is to make sure that I've got my own little way of proving absolutely everything I'm going to say to the client. So whether it's looking at just the capsular range of the shoulder, making sure that they're sort of in that vicinity of sort of 160 total degrees of range um, or above, um, making sure that we've got established sort of normative data, um, not just trusting sort of things like limb symmetry indexes because we know, I guess, if the um, if they've got sort of bilateral deconditioning, limb symmetry, all right, isn't actually the most accurate thing to run by. So making sure that we've got sort of established normative data where we can. Um, and that helps me sort of decipher, great, am I going down uh, a tunnel of weakness? Am I going down the tunnel of a restriction in range? Um, and then I guess from a purely diagnostic point of view, so when we're looking at all of our orthopedic testing i guess that was one of the big things that um say that was honed i guess in the in my sports masters all right in the last few years was actually kind of going back to basics and checking out the specificity and sensitivity of all the orthopedic tests and realizing not a whole lot helps at the shoulder but we can be incredibly accurate at the knee or the ankle um so I guess that's kind of uh, helped as well. And then um, I guess one big thing that I also like to look into is kind of like the, the pain pattern. So knowing very explicitly that a, a tendon will warm up, a tendon will likely be sore the next morning, Um that's sort of our bony sort of bone stress injury pathologies, but they're probably going to ache at rest after load. Um, they'll be sore the next day, making sure that the, all those pain patterns um, are also discussed, all right, and assessed, all right, with the client each time as well. Um, but I know that's largely, all right, comes back to a lot more of the, the clinical experience side of things the most because all right some of it's somewhat anecdotal as opposed to all right being able to actually prove anything about that yeah no, I, I think that that's a good process in clinical reasoning skills that or examples that then other clinicians can take and then yeah obviously the more you see it the better you can get at it uh kind of going back to we talked about how to manage each different soft tissue or connective tissue. What are your takes on bracing versus non-bracing or when to do each? And obviously the trade-offs of hopefully trying to stabilize that more, but also you want to get that range early on. I know you mentioned the, you know, different joints have different, you know, risks that you're trying to go about there, but what is your overall view on that? Yeah. So, yeah. 100%. Like mine largely goes back to that risk reward and then looking at that sort of concomitant. So I guess if we kind of take that ATFL, all right, example earlier, um, I actually love moon booting an ATFL sprain, particularly if I, if they want a really quick recovery and that there's a significant restriction sort of in their knee to wall. Um, because the way I see it, I guess an ATFL doesn't really restrict knee to wall. So um, in clinic, if we do get quite a significant drop in the knee to wall, that's kind of a sign to me that we've got quite a strong sort of inflammatory reaction kind of within the joint. Um, we might not know it yet. We might not know if there's a, a Taylor Dome sort of injury or whether we know that there's a sort of a medial Taylor bruise. Um but that's one of my favorites to, to moon boot quite early. As soon as there's that sign that maybe there is that concomitant injury um, sort of within the ankle or within the talus itself. Um, as for the knee, all right, I'm a big, I 
I'm a big bracer mainly just because I kind of want to make sure I'm looking into the long-term health all right, of this person. So all right, if they, even if they've got a grand final in sort of two, three weeks, yeah, we might be that fraction more aggressive, all right, and maybe be willing to play through that little bit of pain. Um, but the big thing is, is they've got to be able to, all right, live an extra sort of 30, 40 years after that injury. So um, if we can sort of promote that recovery of a ligament, all right, as much as we can um, to potentially better forward them, all right, less sort of chronic injuries sort of 20 years down the line, then I'm all for it. And I guess that I guess that's a little bit of a bonus of not working in that elite sport where you kind of have all those extra sort of the pressures um, because it's quite easily for me to convince someone to look five years ahead all right, rather than just looking a couple of weeks ahead to the next game when they've got to be back out there for their coach. Um, but, yeah, general trade-off, though, is, yeah, you're exactly right. You are, um, you are going to get a reduced amount of mobilization of the joint you are going to likely get reduced amount of muscle activity um but if i give someone some very clear instructions to wear a moon boot for weight bearing only and take it off all right we could still get calf raises done we could still get passive mobility done within a pool we could still be doing pool walking sort of at chest height, which reduces 70% of your body weight, um, we can still get mobilization and low-grade mechanical tension through a structure with all those other options, um, even though we may be moon-booting them for the 8,000 steps they do a day or 12,000 steps they do in the day. Um so I guess it's making sure we've also got that clear plan outside of that to make sure we're still getting um, mobility and muscle activation, all right, when they're not in the boot. Yeah, and we, we've talked to you some on the lower limb. What's what's your thoughts on the upper limb? So obviously with, you know, like shoulder dislocation that's been relocated, et cetera, bracing protocols and that, and when, and when do you refer on for obviously their goals, et cetera, but do you have general guidelines you go about with that? Yeah, so I've got um, quite close relationships with a couple of shoulder surgeons in Brisbane. So um, first-time primary dislocations, um, we know they can still be um, non-operatively managed and still return to sport. Um, But the long-term ramifications of the injury, I always like that being presented from um, a surgical point as well. So because we've got such good relationships with them, um, we'll still get all the guys and the girls to still have a surgical consult, even though we're not going in there with the mindset of, hey, we're having surgery in the next couple of weeks. Um, they'll still come back into the clinic and and do, um, and do the non-operative route. As for bracing, um, similarly, like the glenohumeral ligaments, if it's an anterior dislocation, right, I want them to heal as much as i can because looking at say that risk versus reward again if we're allowing those glenohumeral ligaments to to heal that fraction longer then we know we're looking at um a much higher uh chance of dislocation following that um so i'll be i'm a little bit uh on the bracing side with to that too uh and normally i'll be looking at sort of four to six weeks in the brace um, and we know sort of sort of MCLs might take six to eight weeks, um, slightly shorter just because it's not a weight-bearing joint, I think, in the shoulder. So normally I don't brace them quite as long, but uh, they're still able to do a little bit of um, sort of pain-tolerated activity outside of that, provided, all right, we're moving sort of through, all right, more of the flexion plane rather than the abduction plane where we're getting a lot more of the stress. Um, and I guess that's where sort of the anatomy of the ligament and knowing all the positions of stress comes in as well because we'll be able to uh, to mobilize them all right through the flexion plane without sort of causing too much grief hopefully um, rather than the abduction so we can still maintain that little bit of mechanical tension through the rotator cuff 
all right, the deltoid, the pecs, okay, um, whilst also making sure we're allowing those ligaments to heal up as much as possible. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good summary of having the ankle, knee, and shoulder reasoning through different bracing protocols, when to brace, and, and how you go about that. I guess the last two main factors I wanted to touch on here, some tricky ones post-injury, that stubborn last bit of range of motion that you can't get at a joint, as well as if you know that with the neuromuscular inhibition, if you're really struggling to get something to fire, you know what are what are two things, or those what are the things you do to help with those two annoyances? Hmm. So yeah, with muscle inhibition, we use um, to oh, not so much just in the acute phase, but we use the complex neuromuscular stimulation machine. So. Um, so if we take the knee as a bit of an example again, so we'll use the complex on um, the quads hamstrings for all of our sort of um, not just ACL, any sort of knee surgery. So hamstring is one of the funny ones. You look at social media and things like that, everyone complexes a quad, but I've never seen a picture of someone complexing a hamstring in my life. <laughs> um, so I guess that's one of the, the funny ones is, we do some things for some muscle groups, but then completely forget about all the other muscle groups. Um, so on that example, like we'll complex a, a soleus sort of post syndesmosis injury, complex the hamstring and the quad um, sort of post knee, uh, knee injury or knee surgery. And I'm hoping to, to sort of put a lot of that inhibition stuff to bed um, quite early with those sort of electrical stimulation protocols. I guess the stubborn ones sort of come back to, again, I guess it's like, have we actually got, all right, a quiet joint, all right? Are we still getting a little bit of stubborn swelling? Maybe we're still doing a little bit too much on our feet, okay? And we've still just got a little bit of that stubborn aching pain. Um, so maybe we haven't quite got as happy a joint, all right, as we can, all right, leading to some of that sort of, arthrogenic muscle inhibition sort of stuff. Um, so then I'd be coming back to, all right, do we need to do a short stint on an anti-inflammatory? All right, do we need to do um, a short stint, kind of making sure we ice the joint for sort of three or four days or um, three to four times a day, sort of at the shoulder? Um, um, and then maybe we're also then looking at, all right, have we actually sort of just missed a little bit all right, have we actually missed the fact that there was just that little bit more damage in that acute phase that we've we've kind of missed, all right, to that muscle group, all right, say with like our tib post and our perineals, like we know that they can often cop a lot of um, lot of trauma and an ankle sprain as well. So maybe we just didn't quite catch that early enough. Um, so we're sort of chasing our tail a little bit towards the end of the rehab. Um, and, and I guess that's where... All right, trying to take as um, holistic assessment as you possibly can can assist as well, whether it be yeah taking the uh, getting some of the strength data on those uh, surrounding muscles. All right, might clue us into that a little bit earlier so that we don't miss it. Yeah, and with with the uh, that swelling that you mentioned popping up, what's your reasoning through ankle versus knee? Because those are probably you know the two main ones that are going to swell up with. Do you want them completely quiet before you start to push on with those weight-bearing exercises? How quiet do you want them? If they, how they respond the next day, what are your adjustments there? And maybe talk a little bit more on that. Mm. Yeah, so I think definitely, all right, my big indicators sort of with the, the joint as a whole, all right, is we've got three time points sort of acutely then and there when we're doing the exercise, all right that night the next day i don't like sort of time points two and three at all so if i'm getting a, a joint that's painful that night all right i'm pretty comfy to say all right i've chosen the wrong exercises all right or maybe my my dosage all right is a little bit too intense or maybe all right my client's actually just completely missing the mark in that case we might sort of um, revisit those exercises again but yeah so Ankle and knee always going through those three sort of checkpoints, acute that night and the next morning. Um, I don't necessarily need a fully quiet joint as 
I still think if you only saw in that acute time frame, as in then and there, we can still go three steps forward and one step back, provided we've still got the dosage right of the muscle. Um, so if we're still able to get enough load through the quad, all right, post-op, that we're going to be able to induce adaptation at the quad and we've just got that tiny little bit of joint pain all right, um, at the time, but they're completely fine that night or the next morning, um, then clinically I'm quite happy to sort of push on that little bit. Where I kind of draw the line though with, I guess, with knees and ankles a little bit is if we haven't got a quiet joint sort of swelling and pain-wise with our kind of like our static strength exercises, then there's no real way in hell I'm moving on to running. Um, so I guess the biggest thing I see is, all right, is people just running on knees just way too early and where the knees quite clearly swollen, saw that night and the next day. Um, and I guess the physio is kind of just like, yeah, let's just keep going. Like <laughs> no pain, no gain. There's only one way. All right. Through. And that's just sort of pushing through the symptoms. Um, but that's the leap that I won't take because that's where I'm sort of, um, reflecting and going, okay, we haven't done enough, all right, to establish um, strength in a particular area. Um, the joint's not feeling supported enough from the muscles, all right, maybe it's a rate of force development thing. Maybe we're strong enough, but we actually haven't done sort of sufficient rate of force development work, all right, with a range of plyometrics. So that's that sort of the bridge where I'll actually sort of call it quits and we'll um, work through another sort of three to four week block, um, chasing a few more adaptations before we run. Yeah, I think that's a good way. It's simple, like you want no swelling, but it's also complex in the reasoning and, and how much to do and, and the thought process behind it. So I think that gives it, provides a good framework there. Uh, I know it's not always that initial acute stage as that was kind of the main topic of this podcast, but in that, those early stages of trying to get back that last stubborn bit of range of motion, do you have things you like to do, especially at the ankle and knee, I mean, and shoulder, I guess, uh, or general principles you like to go by or certain things that you try to do to help with that last bit? Last bit of range? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought... I don't know whether it's maybe if it's just that I am a fraction conservative in the early stages, but I often don't have to chase too much range at the ankle. Um, when we are sort of chasing that knee to wall range, um, that's when I'll look a lot more dynamic. So that's kind of where I might bring in, all right, a bit more of sort of like a knee over toes lunge, um, something that's kind of getting a bit more of that sort of functional dorsiflexion as opposed to um, just slamming away at the the ankle in the clinic a couple of times a week to get the last little few centimetres out of a needle wall. Um, and then I guess it also comes back to, I guess, a little bit of the diagnosis component where if there was a little bit of that jointy injury sort of at the start that was concomitant to the ligament, i might not actually expect to get that last little bit of range. Um, and I guess that's where the complexity of diagnosis comes in as well. Um, cause there will be injuries that we may not get back to a hundred percent. Um, but, uh, I'm, I know we're always going to strive to do so. Um, but yeah, I always move to more, um, sort of like the dynamic mobilization all right, with exercise choice per se, as opposed to, um, to looking at more sort of like passive modalities. Um, we do sort of use sort of like the mobilization blocks, whether it's like there is the clubs here, or the um, two by four block on the ground and a little strap over the top. Um, we utilize those a lot if we do have a bit of a stubborn knee to wall. Um, but uh, yeah, otherwise I'm normally asking myself the question of, I guess, what am I doing? I was like, because the, the joint's clearly not as happy as I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, thank you very much for taking the time to be on today. I think that gives a good summary of 
all the key components of the the early stages and ways that people can reason through different aspects of it. Uh, do you want to provide maybe just a last bit of summary of your main points and main importances kind of of this podcast that you think you want people to take away and then we'll um, get you to sh- show uh, shout out where you, people can follow you and go from there? Yeah, sure. So I think we've definitely got to respect um, the physiological healing processes so early on. So being sort of well adept at knowing, all right, um, sort of the, the healing timelines of our soft tissue structures. So knowing that a muscle is going to regenerate a lot quicker and there are muscle, there are our injuries that might recover in that sort of two to six week time frame. Um, whereas our sort of our grade two to grade three ligaments, the ligament itself may sort of take that eight to 12 weeks to actually sort of heal to where we uh, would deem a, a ligament to be fully healed. Um, and then our tendons sort of, it's a, a very, it's an ever-growing topic in the tendon, but we know that, say, an intramuscular tendon injury of a hamstring, say, got two to three times the return to play um, prediction than a, and a soft tissue. So we know that they're sort of two to three times uh, the time frame of a muscle. But it normally always comes back to the metabolic rate, so the, how much blood supply, all right, do we have to that structure? And then how organized is that connective tissue? Um, so like we said, the tendons are highly organized collagen structure, so they take um, significantly longer. And then the big thing, I guess, is always kind of being able to make that sort of risk versus reward um, sort of process in your head um, when it comes to sort of bracing or booting or being aggressive with an injury because uh, we don't want to be, I guess, putting the athlete at risk of one of those more severe injuries or putting them at risk of potentially surgery if we sort of mismanage, um, say, the the ligament that we used earlier, like an MCL versus an ATFL. So being able to establish your own sort of risk versus reward um, for each structure is important as well. Yeah, perfect. And if you want to just share where people can follow you, get in touch with you if they want to see you or just, um, again, follow your information and then i'll put those in the show notes yeah beauty so yeah so like i said we said i own uh, rsp sports physio so we're just in albion brisbane so um but you can see me there uh monday to friday and then also my uh on social media it's j.edwards underscore sports physio um so you can follow me there for anything sort of uh, injury, primarily sort of ACL related with respect to the social media side of things, um, and then anything sort of noughts and rugby related as well. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for that. Beauty. Thanks, Pat. Thank you for listening to No Week Links. If you enjoyed the show and could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it would be greatly appreciated. If you're interested in any other content I put out, you can follow me on Instagram at Coach Patrick Wood or Twitter at Coach Patty Wood. Thanks again for listening.